Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome, friends, to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and my guest this week is none other than Todd Wilson, the founder and director of Exponential. Todd and his team have been helping pastors and ministry leaders embrace the biblical call of multiplication for many years through Exponential's resources and events. Todd is also the author of an insightful book about personal calling entitled More, and he's written countless articles, ebooks, and training resources focusing on church multiplication and church planting. Now, on this week's episode, Todd and I talk about the biblical framework for understanding personal calling and purpose and how to avoid making this an idol. Todd shares the challenges churches face in helping people embrace their personal calling and offers critical shifts that we must make in church culture. Todd also shares many free resources to help your leadership through this process. It's a fantastic discussion uh, with great tools and resources. So please, won't you join me in my conversation with Todd Wilson. Todd, I'm so excited to have you with us on the Church Leaders Podcast today. Welcome, brother. Jason, it's great to be with you. Appreciate what you're doing and uh, love our relationship with outreach. Yeah, super, super excited. It's, it's fun to have, you know, uh, kind of an old friend of the organization uh, on the podcast because we've had the opportunity to do a lot together over the years and, and the great work that, that you and your team does through Exponential and, and many other many other things. We'll, we'll talk more about that uh, more deeply. But uh, Todd, um, kind of the, the topic of today, you know, there have been many conversations, books, articles, even events um, sort of around the idea of purpose and personal calling. And you uh, spent quite a bit of time researching and writing um, a book entitled More. And I- I'm just curious, why did you spend, I think it's five years of, of research and writing to uh, write a book on personal calling? Yeah, you know, it's a convergence of a couple of things, Jason. I, uh, I'm i a marketplace leader, an engineer by trade. I uh, did 15 years in the marketplace. Uh, 20 years ago now, a guy, Bob Buford, wrote the book Halftime. I was wrestling young with uh, sort of what am I going to do with the rest of my life, was fairly successful and read Bob's book. And, and his book sort of moved me into the the significance conversation, ended up leaving the marketplace and going into full-time vocational ministry. Uh, At that point, sort of an entrepreneurial switch went off and really got into this sort of serial entrepreneur thing, even though I'm on staff at a church with starting new ministries and doing new things. And in the process of that, this ministry exponential that I lead was, was sort of born. And at the core of exponential is multiplication. And uh, one of the core elements of multiplication is this idea of calling. And so, you know, the idea of mobilizing everyday missionaries on their everyday, you know, to everyday mission fields. So the combination of my own story and journey of coming out of the marketplace into full-time vocational ministry, then leading a nonprofit whose very livelihood and whose mission and, you know, if we were to ever say, what would allow us to shut down Exponential someday? Uh, it would have to be after this idea of people finding, you know, just an army, a, a movement of people discovering their personal calling, uh, living as everyday missionaries to their everyday mission fields. So uh, the combination of my background coming out of the marketplace, my own story, the leading exponential and this dimension of, of mobilization. And then 
I just had a number of people in my life, ranging from Alan Hirsch to Matt Carter to a bunch of other people who uh, were affirming what they were seeing in my life on on the personal calling things and just uh, encouraged me to write a book on personal calling. Excellent. And I understand um, you spent some time with with one of my favorite um, theologians and thinkers and, and yeah. lovers of God while you were doing the research for this book. Talk to us a little bit about, about that. Being an engineer and having never written a book, I said, if I could get coaching or input from one person in the world on calling at this point, I was already being mentored by Bob Buford, who wrote the book Halftime. He was encouraging me to write the book, so I've got a great mentor there. Right. But I said, who else would mentor me? And I said, man, I had to reach out to Oz Guinness. He wrote the book The Call 20 years ago. Right. And Oz uh, happens to live in the same area that I live in and agreed to meet me for lunch, and we hit it off, and... and uh, Oz basically coached me through the process uh, with lots of good input. He, he was the first person to read the first draft of the manuscript. Um, if it weren't for Oz Guinness, I would have written this book in a year rather than five years. <laughs> Oz is the one who's responsible for, for, for drawing it out. And here's why. I want you to imagine you sit down to get the feedback from somebody like Oz Guinness on the first draft of your book. And Oz says to me the very first time we met, he said, please tell me you're not writing another self-centered, narcissistic self-help book to help people feel better about themselves. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was just blown backwards. I'm feeling called to write this book. And he's asking me, are you just going to write a narcissistic self-help book for people? And I'm like, Oz, what are you talking about? And he said, well, go look at most of the books that are out there. Most books are about self-fulfillment. They're about helping people feel better about themselves. He said, you need to understand, and you know this from knowing Oz Guinness, like he's one of the smartest people on the planet. Right. So he, he says to me, you know, church historians all the way back to Jesus, it's when the Bible talks about calling, it's talking about your general calling or your primary calling, the calling that you share with all Christians everywhere all the time. And you can put that calling in the context of be a disciple who makes disciples wherever you are. You could put it in the context of, you know, being a child of God who honors God no matter what you do. It's sort of those elements that we are all called to as the primary calling. And then Oz introduced me to this idea of secondary calling and said our secondary calling is what the Bible only talks a little bit about. And that's the unique gifting that each of us gets. And he said, what we lose track of, he said, we, we unfortunately turn calling into a form of idolatry because we turn the secondary calling, our unique gifting, we make it the most important thing mm. rather than the primary calling being honoring God, being disciples who make disciples wherever we are. And Oz just hammered it into me that the reason we're given our unique calling that unique Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. The reason we're given that calling is purely to, that we can play a role in the primary calling. And what happens is the world flips that upside down and lets the calling conversation really be about secondary calling. We elevate it to uh, how do people feel better about themselves? How do they get jobs that are better? How do they, you know, fit better into what they're doing so they can feel better in life and make more money? 
And that's what Oz was referring to on this idea of, you know, don't turn calling into a a form of idolatry where where you make your primary calling more or your secondary calling more important than your prime your secondary calling. So, I I in the process of just working with Oz Guinness on that, uh, I really took the posture of a student. I I read over a hundred different books and articles, every you know bibliography review I could do. I went back and looked at historical stuff in Christianity and just really tried to learn as much as I could. And that also contributed to the five years of writing a book. Um, let's get a little more practical. You touched on the idea of our primary, our general calling, yeah. uh, which, and I think that distinctive is huge, you know what I mean? Um, because uh, we do see so many times, and even within the church, whenever we're kind of exploring, or uh, oftentimes you might have a, a class or some type of a workshop or something where it's kind of digging into personal calling, you know, oftentimes it does gloss over the general calling and move straight into, you know, what you what you talk about, the, the secondary, the unique calling for each individual. So I think that distinction's very, very important. Um, one of the things that you pull out is uh, kind of the framework of thinking both of our general calling and the kind of that unique personal calling is um, kind of like three questions that we reflect upon, you know, three different ways to, to think about this. Can you talk to us a little bit about that three-part framework? Yeah. Uh, the framework is called the Be, Do, Go framework. The three questions, who am I created to be? What am I made to do and where am I supposed to do it? Three questions. If you think about those three questions, those are three questions that universally have been asked by men and women since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Who am I made to be? What am I made to do? Where am I supposed to do it? I'm going to suggest to you that in the fall in the garden, look, look what happened when Adam sinned and was kicked out of the garden. He lost his identity in God. There was there was an identity loss there, who he was created to be. There was a purpose loss. He, he, he was perfectly content in the garden, doing the work of God in the garden, and now lost that contentment of work. In fact, God told him, you'll now toil the rest of your life in, the, in things. So lost that divine purpose, and then physically lost the place, kicked out of the garden. Yeah. So... All three of those things that were lost with original sin are, I would suggest to you, are simply why they're the three most asked questions men and women have now, because we lost them uh, with the fall in the garden. Um, here's what's really cool, though. This, when I started looking at it, and I, you can't get away from the engineer in me, um, <laughs> I, I really latched onto when I was wrestling with, with how to think about those three questions. Um, with the idea that in nature, um, if you think about a sweet spot, um, literally God has created in nature thousands and thousands of sweet spots. The rooms you and I are sitting in right now have acoustic sweet spots. The lenses on my glasses have acoustic sweet spots. The microphone I'm talking into has an acoustic sweet spot. If you're a hunter, the gun scope has, an, has a sweet spot. Um, and so if, if God created the world naturally with sweet spots, it begs the question, are there some common elements that are common to all sweet spots, mm -hmm. like the thousands of sweet spots in nature? And here's what's cool from how God created things. Every single sweet spot that you can name in nature, the thousands of them in nature, share three common elements. 
they share a purpose or, or there is a purpose for a sweet spot. There is a design for a sweet spot and there is a position for a sweet spot. Now don't miss that. Those three elements, there's a purpose, a design and a position. Those exactly line up with the three questions. They line up with the be, do, go. Who am I created to be? That's a design question. What am I made to do? That's a purpose question. Where am I supposed to do it? That's a position question. I'm going to suggest to you that God created the world with sweet spots. Adam and Eve were in their sweet spot in an eternal relationship with God, in the sweet spot with him, and that sweet spot was lost. And in fact, our true sweet spot with God won't be regained until we're in eternity with him. But in this gap in between, while we're fallen people, sinful people in a sinful world, we are constantly going to have this discontent to pursue getting back into our natural sweet spot. Um, and, and so the idea of the Be, Do, Go framework is both with primary calling and secondary calling, you can apply the Be, Do, Go. In the primary calling, think about be, do, go. Um, what are the elements that are shared by all people? That's why I said one way you could articulate it would be we are to be disciples of Jesus, growing more like him. That's a, a being created in him, for him, to be like him. Right. Uh, we're made to make disciples of others, the do, wherever we are. You know, it's not like we have to move all the way around the world, you know. In, in fact, what's ironic is we wrestle with this, oh my goodness, what if God would call me all the way halfway around the world? Well, guess what? If God called you halfway around the world, your primary calling in that place halfway around the world would still be to be a disciple who makes disciples in that place you're in. Yeah, that's And good. that's why this idea of everyday, that we're all everyday missionaries where we already are, our primary calling does not require, require God to relocate us anywhere in the world. The primary calling can be lived out right where we are. And then the be, do, go equally applies on secondary calling. I'd say you can take it right out of Ephesians 2.10. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We're a unique design created to do good works and deeds that God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the unique purpose of good works and deeds that's unique to us. And then what's really cool in Ephesians 2.10, some of the versions, translations say, that we are to walk in. The idea that we're actually to put the, we're, we're not uh, trophies on a wall or prizes on the wall for God. We're actually to put who we are and what we're to do into action and to walk into it. Yeah, that's good. I love that. I, I love that framework, brother. It's so, um, so clear. And, and I have not, I had not until you wrote about this, you know what I mean? And then reiterated it here, but talked, uh, uh, thought through it in re regard to the fall. You know what I mean? And, and how does yep. that be, do, go relate to, um, you know, from, from the very, very beginning, which is, I think, well, pretty, pretty powerful when you, when you think through yeah. it, right? Yeah. And let me suggest to you, Jason, like the whole idea of midlife crisis or, you know, halftime for people, when people are like wrestling mid-career with, oh my goodness, am I doing the right thing? Where am I to go? I'm going to suggest to you that the way we've conditioned things in society on the be, do, go Mm -hmm. We raise our kids in a way that we're, we, we try to get them good at things. They're good at sports. They're good at music. We get them voice lessons. We get them music lessons. We focus 
extraordinarily on the do part of their calling. We don't spend enough time on the be part. And then they go off to college and what do we do? We say, we're spending a lot of money on you. You got to get better at doing something so you can make a living. So now, you know, we've spent 18 years focusing on their do and then college gives them the degree in the do. And then what's the number one question when they come out of college? Where, <laughs> where am I going to get a job? Right. And look what's happened. They've skipped the B. We, we have, we, we have literally 22 year olds coming out of college who do not know who they are. That's why colleges are adding everything from gap years to undeclared majors. People don't know who they are. And guess what happens with now just fast forward it to people who are 35 to 45, kind of been there, done that in the marketplace, going up the corporate ladder, figuring out what they do want to do and don't want to do. And all of a sudden, I'm going to suggest to you that what a real midlife crisis is without being with most people can't articulate it is the realization that they don't really know who they are. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes perfect sense. That's a whole nother book, brother. That is a whole nother book, man. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, powerful. Now, so as pastors, as ministry leaders, we're thinking through this idea, you know, personal calling. And oftentimes when you're having conversations with colleagues, you know, other pastors, you know, we talk about um, this idea of our unique, our personal calling and have kind of a understanding. And, you know, everyone has maybe, uh, you know, a story of their call experience or what that might look like, those types of things. Um, but as pastors, we're thinking about all of the people in our churches, right? You talked about this um, idea of, you know, mobilization is key and this whole idea of like, man, if we could just get all the people that God's entrusted to us to, you know, kind of get this, catch this, be, do, go, then, you know, man, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be crazy. Right. Um, But, but what do we need to do in our churches? I mean, what is the challenge before us? Why is that not happening as readily as um, we all think it should? Right. I, I actually think, Jason, that that's maybe one of the most important questions that leaders can ask, the one you're asking, which is, if God made each person with a primary calling and a secondary calling, and they're given that secondary calling to uniquely equip them to play a role in the primary calling, and if we're called to be good stewards of what God gives us, we have to pause and ask the question, why don't we see a whole lot more Christians living within their calling, Mm -hmm. within the sweet spot of their calling. Why isn't it happening? I'm going to suggest to you that without being doom and gloom here, because I actually want to be an optimist about it, but I'm going to suggest to you that what if less than 1%, in fact, what if less than 0.1% of Christians in the United States know what their unique sweet spot of calling is and are living within it. Like, what if it's less than 0.1%? What if the opportunity we have is to mobilize 99.9% of Christians in America who've not yet discovered their unique calling? What kind of impact would that have on our world? Yeah. That's the opportunity that we're not being good stewards of. So it begs the question, if God made it that way, why aren't we seeing it happen? And then what do we need to do about it? So if it's okay, let me address that first question. Please do. Yeah, that's why you're on here, brother. (laughs) We're not seeing it. Um, 
here's the thing. I think if we come back to primary and secondary calling, right. if we can just embrace for a minute that our primary calling, the mission Jesus has given us, his last words, go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. Okay, so our primary calling is to be disciples of Jesus, growing in the fullness of him, making disciples of others wherever we go. Mm-hmm. That's our primary calling. The question we have to ask, is that really functionally, practically? I'm not talking about a slogan on the wall. I'm talking about the way churches are practically living it out. Is the core purpose of the church to equip people to make disciples? Mm. And I'm going to suggest to you that the average church would say yes, but the reality is, let me bring it back to that 99.9%. I'm going to suggest to you that 99% of the 320,000 plus churches in America don't actually have as their core purpose, the reason for existence is to equip followers of Jesus to make disciples of others. And here's the consequence of that. We have adopted an operating system in the U.S. church that instead of adding disciples Jesus way, relationally, by a disciple who makes a disciple, who makes a disciple, who makes a disciple, just like the way Adam and Noah repopulated the earth, the way they were fruitful, they didn't choose to be the father of everybody. They had kids who had kids who had kids. Mm -hmm. The way we're doing the operating system in the U.S. church is we're trying to create big holding tanks, programmatically adding people into our our holding tanks. And the way we're adding disciples, for the most part, is programmatically not through disciple making. So here's the first huge, I'm going to even call it a sin for the church, Mm -hmm. is we're not embracing the primary calling to be disciples who make disciples wherever we go. We're replacing that primary calling with a programmatic approach to growth and addition. If Oz Guinness were on with us right now, just like he got in my face about the idolatry of replacing secondary calling with primary, we have a form of idolatry in our churches with the operating system. A programmatic approach to addition is a form of idolatry. And so here's our, our challenge of why we're not seeing it happen. We've got to get to a point where disciple-making is the primary thing. And when it is, then naturally, the idea of mobilizing people in their area of giftedness, mobilizing them as everyday missionaries to the everyday mission fields where they live, it's it's a non-negotiable. It has to happen if we're going to be successful at relational disciple-making Jesus' way. Um, If I can say it this way, Here's what we're doing. Because of our programmatic approach to addition rather than disciple-making approach to to addition, when it comes to mobilization, we have to view the people in churches as volunteers, not as missionaries. Mm. And guess what? If you take all of the collective hours of volunteerism in the church in a week— and add it up collectively across the 320,000 plus churches, all of those volunteer hours, then you've got to go to the next like nine or 10 nonprofit organizations that mobilize volunteers 
to collectively get what the church is mobilizing every week. Right. We are the best mobilizers of volunteers in the history of the world. And you've got to ask the question, why and to what end? Mm. And the answer to both of those questions is, why are we the best and to what end? Because we have a programmatic operating system to fuel the growth of the church that never satisfies itself. I'd ask you this question, when has a program ever reproduced itself? Programs don't reproduce themselves, people do. Right. Jesus' way of disciple-making, disciples who multiply disciples who multiply disciples, that's natural. And what we've got to do in our mobilization is then say, how do we mobilize those disciples to make more disciples? Versus, no, our method of addition is how do we attract people? And then we've got hundreds of people needed in the children's ministry. We need greeters and ushers and We've, we need this army of volunteers, and guess what? That Go back to be, do, go. Are we in churches actually helping people find their sweet spot of be, do, go? The answer is no. We focus on the go part. Where do we need your time and talent? Mm. We simply plug into where, we, we go after the where part, not after the identity part. So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing, Jason, right. but... If, if we're going to really change the tide on where things need to go on this, it's got to come back to just the core of disciple-making. We've got to restore biblical disciple-making Jesus' way as the core purpose of the church and embrace it that way. And what's really painful is that we've built—many of our churches have been built and grown on the programmatic approach that requires us to fuel the programs with volunteer hours. And that goes directly at odds with this idea of, you know, where do you find the time, the energy to even mobilize people? You know, but one, you got to help them find their calling. But then do you really think the average full-time staff children's person is going to get excited about mobilizing people on the sweet spot of their calling into the corners of society when that's going to take those volunteers away from the children's program on Sunday morning? <laughs> that begs the question, Todd. I mean— all that you're all that you're saying uh, makes makes perfect sense, and and you know we've I think you know um, in the church world we've had a lot of discussions around this idea of programming to such a degree that we're creating a very consumeristic mindset as people come into church and and just you know kind of how we're approaching church, you know does it align with really what ultimately the calling of the church is, and so so there's lots of discussion around that, but the big question is how do we change it up. You know, yep. I mean, how, how do we make the shifts necessary? Um, and so I was wondering, can you speak to some of that? Yeah. And not, and not yeah. just uh, theoretically for sure, you know, but also like, where have you seen this happening? You know, have you, you know, as, as, as you know, we talk about the optimism and the hope, are there churches that are figuring this out as well? So what are those shifts? And then yep. who's yeah, doing it? The shifts yeah. and then let's talk about where we're seeing it happen. Perfect. Um, because the, this mobilization piece is such an important part of multiplication for exponential. We've dedicated it, you know, an entire year of our theme to what we're calling made for more and made for more is about you know, this idea of how do we mobilize everyday missionaries to everyday mission fields. The context that we put the entire year's worth of content together was out of the book of Ephesians. 
So what I'd like to do is just rapid fire through six chapters in Ephesians. We identified six truths, one from each of the chapters, and then a, sh a corresponding shift that needs to happen out of each chapter. And the reason this approach is really important is let me go back to the operating system idea. Whenever I say the operating system in the church, just think the culture, the, the system of norms in the church. Um, if we want to change the way we're fundamentally mobilizing people, that's a cultural change. It That isn't a programmatic change. I mean, look at the irony in what if we try to programmatically change our programs to get to a non-program thing? We've, we've, we've <laughs> right. kind of got to... We've got to go back to the principles. We've got to go back to, if you could just take a blank piece of paper and build up a mobilization system on basic principles from the Bible, let me suggest these six from Ephesians. So here's the first. In Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 21, 22, 23-ish, um, I think we see a great statement of the purpose of the church. We see the idea that... that um, the church is to be the fullness of Jesus into every crack and cranny of society. The church has the ability, the capacity to fill everything in every way via Jesus. So the first truth that we build on is we've got to, we've got to believe that the fullness of Jesus through the church actually does have the ability to fill every nook and cranny of society. And I know that seems like kind of obvious, but it's not obvious. Like it's not the way we're living in our churches. Do we really believe that Jesus has the ability to fill every nook and cranny of our, just draw whatever area you want, five miles around your church. Does Jesus have the ability to fill every nook and cranny of society through all domains of society? And let's say we believe he does. The next obvious question is, how? How would he go about doing that through us as the church? That's what leads to Ephesians 2. This idea in Ephesians 2.10, um, the truth there is that every follower of Jesus is a masterpiece work of God with a general calling and a unique calling. That the manner in which we would fill every nook and cranny of society with the fullness of Jesus is by carrying the fullness of Jesus there by disciples who are making disciples in their primary calling. So Ephesians 2 gives us the idea that, that the answer to how is through the masterpiece work that God's given in each person's life, Ephesians 2. The truth in, in Ephesians 3 is that our it's this idea of love, that our, our primary motivation for even wanting to fill every nook and cranny of society there's right motives and wrong motives, and we've got to be careful that our motives aren't separate from Jesus, that they're not just the desire to do good, to do social justice, to do things, but it really is rooted in the motive of love, that, that idea of carrying Jesus' fullness. Um, if, if we then move beyond the motive of love in Ephesians 4, we get the, the apest or the, the fivefold gifting in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Um, and so the truth there is that our organizational structures need to equip and deploy everyday missionaries. We've, we can't be building institutions that are run by the full-time paid folks. We've got to release the army 
of everyday missionaries who have these masterpiece giftings. But in order to do that, we're going to have to be really careful about how we organize our churches. Are we going to organize around programs that require volunteers, or are we going to organize around equipping everyday missionaries to discover their unique calling and to mobilize them into the unique nooks and crannies of society, i.e. their everyday mission fields? Um, Ephesians 5, I love the transition in Ephesians 4 to 5, where Paul's doing all these rules for living, be this, do this, be this, do this. And he has this uh, verse in there, make the most of every opportunity. Mm. He's like, given all these rules for living, and, and it's really rules for living so that we're witnesses to a non-believing world, and it's make the most of every opportunity. Well, where does the average person in the church, where are they going to find, where is the make the most of every opportunity? Is it an hour in church on Sunday, or is it somewhere in their mission field the other 167 hours a week when they're not at church on Sunday? Right. And so we've got it in this fifth truth out of Ephesians 5, this idea that the real mission field, the nook and cranny of society mission field, is not inside the walls of the church, it's outside the walls of the church. And then finally in Ephesians 6, we've got to embrace the truth that if we really go after this, if we go after Think about this, Jason. It, there isn't anything, there's, there's not, well, let me say anything. There's not many things that would get Satan more riled than if you really did have a biblical church that was mobilizing people on their unique calling for the purpose of fulfilling the primary calling. Just imagine if the average church, instead of less than 1% of its members being mobilized on unique calling, Imagine if just 10% were. That would absolutely freak Satan out. There, I mean, <laughs> what, what would end up happening out of that? So Ephesians 6, it's not by surprise. We have to expect that we will face spiritual opposition. If we're going to try to mobilize people God's way as everyday missionaries to everyday mission fields, man, Satan is going to go after that. Right. So we've got to be ready for, for the battle. To just summarize the six in terms of shifts in the first one, We've got to shift our culture from more effort to more Jesus out of Ephesians 1. The second, we've got to shift our culture from seeing people as volunteers to seeing them as unique masterpieces with unique missions, Ephesians 2. Third, we've got to shift our culture from more guilt to more love, uh, Ephesians 3. Ephesians 4, we've got to shift our culture from professional clergy doing the work of ministry to equipping and deploying everyday missionaries on mission. Ephesians 5, the fifth shift, we've got to shift our culture from a program-based come and see to a disciple-making go and be approach. And number six, we've got to shift our culture from more strategy to more prayer, fasting, and surrender. Um, and so those, those are what we would suggest are the the kinds of elements that a church has got to go after to shift the culture in their church. I'll just make note that we've got an entire library of free resources that go after these six shifts to help a church establish culture. We've got a, a free uh, uh, small group kit through the book of Ephesians for church staff and elders. It's literally a full-blown Bible study that's a free download with 20 video clips, national leaders, 
and it it's designed to help churches and church staff work through uh, identifying these six shifts and how they they get put into play. Yeah, that's awesome. We've got tons of resources around this. Um, like you said, small group book. You know, I know there's um, uh, different downloads that are available. The videos. You know, I've seen I've seen a lot of it downloaded for my own use. It's, it's we power, have a we have stuff. a church wide campaign kit now modeled after the forty day of purpose. It's literally three to seven sermon outlines, video clips to go with it, uh, small group material for small groups, a separate small group kit for staff and elders. All of that's available for a free download uh, on the Exponential website. It's a it's a made for more uh, church wide campaign kit. That's awesome. And what's uh, where where can they go to get that? Uh, they can go right to the homepage of Exponential Exponential.org. There's a prominent link there for the made for more uh, church wide campaign. Excellent. We'll we'll have that. It even includes like a full thirty day devotional for individuals. There's a personal calling kit with five hours of. Uh, training for individuals on calling with you know from leaders like Rick Warren and and others so it, it's an amazing kit for free yeah yeah that's awesome we'll make sure to have that link in the the show Good. notes for sure Todd so how uh, or who maybe yep or where are yep. you seeing this practically because um, this again this sounds fantastic yeah. believe in it um, where are you seeing this happening. In, yeah. in churches, you know, because it's it's exciting. I think it's energizing to talk about. But then I imagine a lot of pastors listening in right now thinking, well, that's all good and well, but but how can yeah. we actually make that come to pass, right? Yeah. I would say uh, when, when you're looking for some model churches or even some churches to learn from at this point, um, on, on one hand, our challenge is, you know, Less than 7% of U.S. churches are reproducing and multiplying, mm-hmm. and far less than that are would, would be model churches for what we're talking about. So the churches are far and in between. So it's a challenge to find. But here's my encouragement. The first question when you're looking for churches to learn from and model, um, it, it's going to be the disciple-making focus that precedes the mobilization part. You're, you're not going to see... I don't think you're going to see churches making the significant shift before they've made the disciple-making shift, right, gone right. from programmatic to more of a biblical disciple-making orientation. So always when you're looking at, at a church to model yourself after on the mobilization thing, you know, if, if you're kind of quizzing them or interrogating them, you want to see where are they really on the discipleship part. Are they putting disciple-making as a primary calling that drives their efforts for mobilization? Now, having said that, there's a growing number of churches that are absolutely going after this. So like the Tampa Underground, Brian Sanders, uh, Tampa, Florida, um, what you've got is is a church that's trying to have an operating system a different way rather than programmatic it's relational disciple-making. Um, their model is more of a bivocational microchurch model. And that, 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 that idea of how do you move away from the programmatic orientation of church, when, you are, when your operating system is programmatic, your number one issue is how do you finance that? And, and usually when you're program-based, you've got full-time staff, you've got buildings, You've got to have tithes and offerings. Every, you know, I, they, you know, they have the phrase "follow the money" and you'll see where things are at. So, in the program-based church, 
Money really drives everything. When you jump over to where we're seeing progress on both this disciple-making piece and the mobilization part, we're increasingly seeing you know, the words bivocational and microchurch being used together. So down at the Tampa Underground, you've got uh, a collective, it's a church, kind of like the church at Ephesus, which was a whole bunch of house churches around Ephesus. So you've got the Tampa Underground at Tampa, which is over 200 micro churches around Tampa. Now, what's a micro church? It's it's a it's it's a relational disciple making group, but it's built around the missionary impulse. It's each of these micro churches adopts some nook or cranny of society. It might be sex trafficking. It might be healthcare. Uh, it it you know just all the different areas. And what they try to do is discover a person's passion um, and burden, and then how do they kind of lean into mobilizing people around where their passion and burden intersects and let these microchurches birth? So uh, the, the Tampa Underground would be a great example. You've got other churches that are, are you know, uh, I mean, uh, what a lot of churches are doing are trying to move, you know, they start with the programmatic operating system and there's only so far you can move that without kind of, you know, blowing it up. There, there's an old <laughs> saying that, you know, is is the change revolutionary change or evolutionary change? And I would suggest to you that the, the what we're talking about in its full form is more revolutionary change than it is evolutionary change. So, Part of what we need to do is say, well, that doesn't need to hinder us from doing it. Let's just acknowledge that there's a lot of existing churches that need to unapologetically work on evolutionary change. How do they maximize mm. moving from where they are toward this idea of, of a biblical mobilization without actually killing the church? And then the revolutionary change, this is where for you know us at Exponential, it, we could not be more excited you know, anytime you talk about revolutionary change, the best place to do that's in new churches. Right. Because you're not having to undo something. Right, you, can, right. you can make revolutionary change by starting a new thing a new way. And so we are absolutely encouraged that where things are headed in the church planting and multiplication space, that we're increasingly going to see more and more expressions of new churches that are this idea of into the nooks and crannies of society and are built off of a bivocational where, you know, they don't have the money burden and it, it's in there. Now, for the for the person who's leading a programmatic church, though, there's a bunch of churches to learn from. So you've got, you know, Dave Clayton, who's one of our exponential associates, the lead and founding pastor at Ethos Church in Nashville. They're doing some amazing things built off of disciple making at the core and how do you build your life around the rhythm of disciple making and then the idea of mobilizing people on their on their unique calling. Um, so I, I think no matter where you are on the spectrum on this evolutionary revolutionary change, you can learn from somebody and, and sort of push things farther than where you are. Yeah, Todd, and I got to tell you, I really appreciate um, the fact that you that you provide encouragement to those um, established programmatic style churches, yep. um, because that's that's one of the things that oftentimes when we get into these ty types of conversations, 
you don't always sense because the reality yeah. is there are a lot of established churches <laughs> around the country, right? So, um, yeah. and and sometimes those pastors can feel deflated. I mean, they're excited about it, this vision, but then they're like, "Well, what about like what could I do?" Or you know, and then they feel like that's a either or type thing. Um, but I love the fact that you said that you know those established churches to recognize this and then not have to feel like you have to apologize, you know, that you, but, but begin to move in this direction and do all that you can to help create this culture, this disciple making (laughs) culture and, you know, trust God with how, how everything comes, but be intentional about it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. I I would even suggest when we, a couple of years ago, when we were putting our level five multiplication framework together, we had a team of about 20 people around the country, including some prominent pastors who were, you know, in the reproducing multiplying realm. And here's what happened. Uh, we had at least three uh, megachurch pastors who really wrestled with, oh my goodness, uh, to get my church where it needs to be on what we're talking about right now, I think I might have to leave my church and go start a new church. Mm. And But here's what they concluded, and this is what gets exciting. There is a growing number of what I would call level four reproducing churches out there that that they they get what we're talking about. They'd like to get fully there, and they they realize that they've got a stewardship issue that they need to steward what God's given them, and that may mean staying where they are, but then coaching and mentoring others into hey, here's what I've learned. Here's If I were starting over again, here's how I would do it differently. And, and, and just providing that permission, encouragement, and accountability to others. So I think there's, you know, if, if you're somebody, you know, that's looking for help, I, I think if I were out there starting something new today, I'd be finding one of those leaders who has their own discontent, wondering if they should leave their established thing and and instead are opting to mentor and coach the next generation into it. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. I this entire conversation has been incredible. And um and the beauty of it is if if anyone's listening in, right? For those of you who are listening in, um that want to dig more deeply into this, um as Todd has has shared, there are plenty of ways to do that. Plenty of free resources available and then Todd, why don't you talk a little bit about how exponential as a whole is kind of tackling and championing this as well. How, how are other ways that people can get connected and, and learn more and kind of grow in this? Yep. Yeah, we've got a couple of really practical things. I mean, we are a res- a nonprofit resourcing organization. Most of our stuff's free. So if you if you go to exponential.org, we have an entire made for more resource library from our 2019 theme year. And it is free ebooks free online courses, a free online assessment tool to measure where your church is in this mobilization equation. We have a church-wide campaign kit. I mean, we just have lots of free resources. Um, We are birthing, we've already birthed a new nonprofit called Made for More. Derek Bell is going to be the executive director. And as we move forward beyond this year, all of the Made for More resources plus new future ones we're trying to establish this made for more nonprofit as sort of a resourcing hub for churches uh, on best practices and best resources for calling. Um, for right now, exponential.org, and then look for the the made for more resource library. 
Um, the second thing we've got is throughout all of this year, uh, we've got nine events that focus specifically on these six shifts from the book of Ephesians, uh, nine exponential events. Um, six of those events are left this fall. Um, we've got an event in San Diego, San Francisco, Houston, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., and New York City. Uh, and so it, it, we've designed them to be easy for people to bring their entire team. You can bring 10 people to one of these events for uh, very inexpensive. So uh, those also can be found through the uh, exponential.org website too. Excellent, excellent. Brother, I love uh, what you and your team are doing and, um, and how you're helping not just equip the church, but you're helping the church um, as a whole you know, process through biblically. Um, looking at uh, the time in which we are living, the call that God has on the church, and then how can we be most effective in living that call out in, in ways that make an impact. And uh, just just incredible things coming from, from Exponential and, and uh, the whole team. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. And uh, we'll have links to, uh, to your book and to Exponential and all these different things in the show notes. So if you're listening in, you can check that out to get some direct links there. But I appreciate your time, brother. God bless you. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.